Rachel, thank you so much for making some time to be with us today. Um, let's just orient us to kind of the the origins of this work for you at Atacena and this, you know, incredibly forward-thinking approach to public equities. And uh, where did it come from for you? So this is a little bit of a longer story, um, but I have this deep belief that that all organizations keep the DNA of their founders. And I'm the founder of Atacena. So I think probably what's most important for folks to know is that um, is, is about me. I was raised by a single Black mother who really struggled um, for financial security in a very rural town um, that was still largely segregated when I was growing up there in the 80s. Um, I graduated from high school at 15 and ultimately went to UC Berkeley, um, which is where I studied economics. But my the road to get there formed the foundation of my deep commitment to racial, gender, economic, and climate justice and the understanding that they're deeply connected. So just to give you a sense, um, so the place where I grew up is Oroville. It is a town that has a very large dam in Northern California. Um, black people were brought up from the South um, during the Depression era to build the dam. And, um, you know, there were some poor white people also that were brought up, but there were a lot of people who died building that dam. Um, in the end, the black people were redlined and allowed to live on the South side of town, which is where I grew up. Um, I grew up primarily in a family of women, which ended up meaning that we were, we were even poor amongst the black folks who were there. Um, because the jobs locally were primarily reserved for, you know, white people in the area and where there were jobs for black people, they were generally reserved for the males. Um, the reason I grew up in a family of women though, is directly because of over-policing. All of my family members, um, were incarcerated from over-policing and three of my male family members, including my father, um, have been killed by the police without, to date, without any repercussions. Um, and so I had a pretty good understanding of the, um, of what happens to a society when there isn't a clear understanding of how racial gender and economic justice, um, um, when there isn't a clear understanding of how to weave those into the fabric of society, I could see like what was happening, not only to my community, but to my town as a whole. Um, something really shifted in 2017, though, um, and I started to see the deep intersection of climate justice as well. The Oroville Dam, uh, the years prior to that, there had been, you know, catastrophic weather events. And basically, the dam uh, was about to burst in 2017. And interestingly enough, the flood inundation area was the south side of Oroville, where the Black folks have been redlined to live. And I was like, and it just kind of suddenly hit me that, like, these issues of those who are most oppressed, like, will always end up being intersectional. Like, of course, we end up being a family of women. That's not where the jobs are. Um, like, the men have been taken out of the home, which, like, further leads to the poverty. And, of course, we're the ones that need to be evacuated when the dam that we helped to build and many of our people died building bursts. And I was like, this kind of thing happens because we have a strange orientation to how we're organizing ourselves as human beings. If you think of, like, if we think of our societies as a human body, um, 
we take the ailing part. Like if I hurt my arm, the way that we're interacting as though like we're either denying that the arm exists or getting angry at it or somehow like cutting it off from the whole body rather than integrating and healing it and making it part of a whole human being. And my deep understanding um, that I had always come with was that those who are closest to the issues that are faced are the ones who have the best solutions. If your arm is hurting, paying attention to the pain is not only good for that arm, it's good for the whole body. And so that's a very deep belief that I came into this work with. I, you know, I, Many of our problems seemed related to money growing up. And so I went to study economics and I went into financial markets because I really wanted to understand money deeply. And the strange thing occurred to me, which is that um, people who were talking about making an impact with money in public markets where like where most of the money is actually stored they're talking about making impact without talking to those who are most impacted because you get a different sense of what's needed and you have better impact when you actually address for example like the pain in the arm right and so um i started off doing something that i thought was really straightforward which was just talking to social justice organizations about uh, what they needed from investors Um, This was such a revolutionary concept. It ended up meaning that like in terms of uh, racial justice, we weren't just looking at diversity and inclusion. We were also looking at the system of mass incarceration and how investors could really be a significant part of dismantling that, not only in our own firm, but also as a peer organizer, right, to other firms. Um, And we've done that across the board with issues of racial, gender, economic, and climate justice. We've been on the cutting edge of um, integrating early into our portfolios, what we end up learning later on um, is going to become an issue. So um, for example, lots of people were really into Tesla and they're like, it's re- you know, Tesla's really great for the environment, but because we take this deep intersectional approach, we understood that they had issues around racial discrimination um, as well as gender discrimination. We knew there were those issues there and companies in our portfolio have to pass all 60 of our metrics for social justice. So they would never kind of end up in the portfolio. But then when a lot of ESG funds started taking a look and saying, whoa, wait, we have this company with racial and gender issues um, that we had included because they met the environmental kind of standards, that was something that we didn't have to worry about because we had already understood Um, that the companies in our portfolios um, have to be very intentional about meeting those standards. And so we feel really proud of the portfolio that we've built. We think it not only has a deep ability for impact, but as important, um, it actually puts us on the cutting edge of what's going to create long-term sustainable returns for investors. And the, the proof is in the pudding. I'd send you to our index website, just compare our index to an unscreened index. It's right there. Rachel, what's so remarkable about what I see Edesina doing is in impact investing, we often have direct private deals that are hard to find. What you're offering is something that's right there on an exchange. You're offering an exchange-traded fund that any of us can go invest in right now. Um, Can you just walk us through, you already have 100 million in your ETF today. Tell us a little bit more. You said 60 factors you screen for. I mean, Many people say we do no harm. We try to screen out a lot of bad companies. Um, there's some proactive screening strategies to help distinguish where Adesina is different from some of other approaches. 
Absolutely. So one of our big focus areas within racial justice is decarceration, as well as land rights and self-determination. So um, when many people think about racial justice and public equities, thankfully, we've had social justice movements give such um, it gives such a loud voice to not investing in private prisons that there have been these huge impacts, right? But when we look at de uh, decarceration, we're not only looking at prison involvement, we're looking at the funding that underpins uh, those prisons being able to function long-term, as well as prison labor, money bail involvement, which feeds that prison pipeline, the companies that are participating in immigrant detention and immigrant and citizen surveillance. So we're really looking across the board at what is the system that's in place that allows mass incarceration to function and how can we mobilize uh, other investors to follow our lead in, in systemically both divesting and for those who don't divest because we aren't always working in partnership with those who don't divest, we're still giving the information that they need to engage with companies where changes can be made. And so um, I, just to give you a really fun, um, Example of something that will hit the news earlier. You know, we publish uh, a racial justice impact data set, um, first of its kind, that covers all of these issue areas. And soon we will be adding an Indigenous Peoples um, screen to that as well that we worked on with the with First Peoples Worldwide. Um, we're really excited about that. The um, What's very interesting, then we'll hit the news um, later on this year, is that when we started looking, you know, people have been very interested in prison stocks, but uh, private prisons have turned to bonds, actually, in order to further raise money to, uh, for their operations. And um, we started doing deep research on who the prison bond funders were. We engaged with the media. We reached out to those finance companies and we saw an, un this is completely unprecedented. Two things happened. One, there was a private prison bond that uh, attempted to come through in Alabama and we and our coalition work were able to successfully derail that. First time anything like that's ever happened. Like basically they brought a bond to market, failed. The um, other thing that you'll hear about later on in the news is that um, we witnessed a 10% decrease in prison bond holdings with financial companies, like a completely unprecedented. And so it's not just that like we're first to integrate these into our portfolios, but we're working in deep coalition, not only with the social justice movements, but with other impact investors to get them to listen to what the social justice movements are telling us will help us dismantle these systems of oppression. I feel really I feel really proud of that, but I have to tell you that when we're talking to institutional investors and they're like, how many corporate resolutions did you file? Um, I'm like, oh, wait, we have to start thinking about impact um, differently. Corporate resolutions are extremely important. And we give those impact investors who are filing corporate resolutions, we write the investor statement that proves the business case for why these practices should end. We give them data about which companies and their portfolios are actually like ultimately contributing to these injustices. And we're the large tent within which those impact investors are able to work on making systems-based change. And that I think is what I'm most proud of, not just our criteria for putting our own fund together, but the way we have impact is really focused with the systems lens and we're seeing incredible results already. Rachel, it's truly remarkable to hear the systemic impact in that um, private prison bond fund story just shows how this coalition that you're a part of and you're building, you're leading with the data and helping make these resolutions happen. You're equipping the whole ecosystem with so much. Um, part of what I understand, though, is that um, 
being a emerging fund manager is not easy given the structural racism of our finance system and given the structural inclinations to not try new things. Um, You faced incredible barriers with uh, conventional investment managers. Um, I understand many asset stewards are very excited about what you're doing, um, but that excitement doesn't translate to real change unless they move meaningful amounts of their money in these ways. Um, you know, give us a taste of where that touches down for you in terms of um, you've seen investment managers not do things. Like you said, like, uh, let's say I'm a Catholic asset steward. And let's say I have the person I've hired to manage my money. And they say, no, we don't invest in Edicina for these reasons. A lot of reasons, whatever. Mm-hmm. How can they go about that and say, no, we're going to do it anyway? Anything, any advice mm-hmm. for them if people feel convicted about this? Um, so what we hear is... Um about a number of ways we don't meet certain criteria that asset allocators, is what we call them, um, have. And if you are willing to go to um, to check out the due diligence 2.0 commitment, it's at duediligencecommitment.com. Um, there's a set of nine principles, which, you know, this was a set of Black and Indigenous um, people of color managers that got together and said, this is what's actually getting in the way. So even in trying to dismantle this barrier, we, we kind of went out to a broader community And, you know, we're being told you don't have the assets under management. You don't have the track record. And what's really interesting is that now we do have nearly 100 million. We do have a one-year track record as well as an index that gives you a longer history to look at. Really, um, there's a deep investment in assets staying where they are. And the trouble with that is that if you look at women and people of color and add them together and you want to make sure that your asset management firm is majority owned, like by either of those groups, you're looking at less than 1% of all asset management firms. So this deep bias toward keeping money where it is just upholds like this systemic racial and gender um, injustice. So we're, we're told that those are the reasons. And yet when we do see an asset allocator move, it's because the asset owner went to them and said, this works for me. This meets all of my criteria. I believe in this. I can see the writing kind of on the wall um, about the way that our world is going. I need you to evaluate this using the due diligence 2.0 principles that allow you to still be a good fiduciary and evaluate this firm. They tell us over and over again, the allocators that have, have had the courage to go first, they tell us it was the asset owners that made the difference. And it's the asset owners saying like, hey, this not only meets my personal values, it also makes a ton of sense financially. I mean, we all want long-term sustainable returns. I don't think that um, in our spiritual communities, we have as many people who are the um, returns chasers that are just trying to kind of shoot the moon. I think that we mostly have people that want long-term sustainable returns for their institutions that are doing good work. And we want long-term sustainable returns for the world. And guess what? That comes from sustainable companies that are being intentional about it. And how do you know if a company is sustainable and being intentional about it? It's by going to these movements for social justice and figuring out how they would take a look at those particular issues. And there's no one else in the industry that's doing that. And yet, you know, I mean, we still keep getting told, we'll wait until you have a three-year track record. Well, if people wait until we have a three-year track record, we won't exist. And I have to tell you, um, my particular background, I am the lightest skinned person in my family. I was born with genius level intelligence. I'm a rare, rare case of starting a financial firm at the age of 25. I've been in this industry for more than 20 years. 
I'm an extremely rare case. If people need to wait for a three-year track record, I'm not sure that our world can wait that long. And I don't see our close competitors um, behind us when it comes to public markets. And we've gone into the belly of the beast. We've gone into the extractive capitalist system and said, start paying attention to these metrics, run these companies in these particular ways. And we need the asset owners that understand that what we're doing is the is ultimately the right thing and the financially sound thing to move their money, to put it where their values are and also where their desires for long-term sustainable returns are. That's really what we need. And we've had people dipping their toe in the water because it's an ETF and, you know, it'll, it'll be open. It's, you know, I can try a little bit now and it'll be open later, but to be perfectly frank, um, that puts a lot of stress on our vast majority BIPOC women, people who are like stacked within our organization. It puts a lot of stress on us. Um, and ultimately we want to be out there doing this ecosystem changing work. Pope Francis would be so animated to hear that you're living the mission he's asking all of us at people of goodwill and people of faith is to go to encounter those most on the periphery those most on the margins those on the south side of Oroville in the wake of that dam the place you grew up to meet the people to talk to the people to have them help shape this decision making and what you're doing with all the movements for justice that you're involved in and bringing people together to build power to be in part of conversation reshaping our systems um what you're saying about long-term sustainable returns resonates so deeply, I think, with people, why they're drawn to a livable future investing workshop, because it is that long-term horizon. Mm-hmm. Pope Francis is trying to consult the people because he's trying to say, what does the church need in this third millennium? I think it's the kind of approach you're taking um, with Edicina. Final question. We always like to think about beauty and dreaming and um, the images that motivate us and sustain us even through the hardest moments. Um, what is some of that for you um, spiritually or beauty or what, what is it that keeps you going in these hardest of moments? You know, um, it's the right thing, of course, to center the voices of the communities that are most impacted by these um, systemic injustices. But really what what I dream of is um, a world where our most powerful social actors, these publicly traded companies, are actually accountable to the public again. And the public is full of people who are not necessarily their investors, but are some of our most vulnerable communities, right? That kind of ailing part of our collective body that needs attention so that the whole body can be sound. and. I, you know, I see a future where it's in the idea that one could profit from or be in the business of mass incarceration is unthinkable. I live for a future where to be a public company, of course, you have to pay the full uh, minimum wage. There's no way you could get away with paying $2.13 an hour if you're paying your CEO millions. That's kind of like our subminimum wage work that we're ending. You know, I live for a world where these huge social actors contribute to the well-being of all of the people and the planet. And the best way to get there is to go to the parts that are hurting now, find out what they need, and to be that important catalyst. We're the ones that they listen to. We're the investors. And the more we can motivate not only the companies on our own portfolio, but our other investors 
in all of these ecosystems, like that just propels us forward to living in that future. And that's that's really the future of beauty that I want for all of us. And a practical note, if people want to invest in Adesina, your ticker symbol, how can they just start moving money right now? Our ticker symbol is JSTC. You Thank can you so go much. and invest right now. Thank you so much, Rachel.